Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of my podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully this results in others learning as well. And for those that are kind of new to this and maybe just started here, this this podcast won't always just revolve around the big book. I do plan on getting into the 12 by 12, some other literature, as well as exploring other secular forms of recovery, uh, such as smart recovery or life ring or uh, other things that maybe become suggested to me as I go along. Uh, but my my initial entry into recovery was through AA, and I have a feeling a lot of people are in that same boat. And I, uh, you know, I found that when I first came into the rooms, I was having a little bit of difficulty really expressing that I was an atheist without being met with some pushback there, while also having difficulty with literature. So I just figure that if anybody is brand new to this, then they, you know, might want to know a little bit more about what this is all about. And hopefully they stick around and catch up on some older episodes. This episode is going to be coming out on October 4th. You know, something I haven't talked about up until now is on September 17th is the sort of anniversary of my date of release from prison. Uh, Back in 2000, I went to prison for seven and a half years. Uh, I got out on September 17th, uh, 2007. You know, I got to admit, man, this this year, there wasn't a lot of significance to it. I'm not saying that it's not an important time or something I don't reflect on, but it didn't impact me like it has in the past as far as like anniversaries go. Usually I try to take some time to kind of contemplate where things are and, you know, just sort of check in on a more global scale of, of how my life's going. And I guess I didn't feel like that that was as necessary or it just didn't seem like something that was going to come naturally. Like it just didn't... I didn't wake up on the 17th and go, oh man, let's think about my life. But uh, I had recently an opportunity to speak on another podcast. This podcast was more of a speaker meeting style podcast. So uh, when that comes out, I'll let folks know and and post some links if they are interested in hearing my story. It's really similar or going to sound very similar to how my story was in the first, you know, episode zero of this podcast. But uh, maybe because it's more of a speaker format, it might flow a little better and might want to share it or I, I don't know, uh, but I'll, I'll share that and just the, the general information for the person who hosts those speaker meetings. They're pretty good. Um, I think I might be the only atheist that she's, she's reached out to and it was interesting to have a conversation with her afterwards. Uh, but what it also did was, you know, anytime I really think about my story and especially the part where I go to prison, you know, I, I spent a lot of time learning how to tell that part and not meaning that it, it's like, rehearsed or anything. It's never felt rehearsed. But when I was in activism, when I was doing uh, activism training, something that you learn if you're going to be in activism that's based on a personal experience is how to tell your story in different settings in an impactful way. Uh, if you're telling your story in a, in a very one-on-one situation, it's going to sound a lot different than if you're telling it on stage. And it's going to sound a lot different depending on who your audience is. The way that you tell it, the, the words that you use, the points of impact, the things you focus on all changes or should. I mean, that's how good storytellers operate, whether it's in activism or not. And this time telling that part of that story, I just, I just realized that I have moved so far away from my experiences in prison while some stuff still pops up and things are affected by that still. I just, it's, it's as if another person went through that. Uh, I can call upon some very specific moments and and I won't I won't lie that even though it's been as many years as it has been there are times where certain attitudes or certain people present themselves in a way where that survival instinct that I kind of grew inside will kick in there are certain aspects of like my personality that came from that that just will not go away and I think that's okay it's I've you know I've learned how to protect myself. I've learned how to stand up for myself. I've learned how to make it very clear that you know I'm not somebody that's going to be just easily pushed around. I'm not an aggressive person by nature, but I can be, and that comes from that that experience in prison. But when those things happen, I don't like 
call upon them in a way that also reflects on my time, if that makes sense. Like, it's not like if somebody puts me in a position where I have to kind of be, a, 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 you know, a little bit more assertive. I'm not thinking, oh, I learned that from prison. And let's think about that. You know, even watching movies or TV shows or things like I was watching some, what is that, 60 days in or whatever. I can, I can call upon some memories of that time. Uh, and it just really, I'm disassociated. Um, I'm going to apologize ahead of time. I, I don't know if my roommate's building a house in the kitchen or what what the hell he's doing, uh, but this is the only time I could really record, so I do apologize for some exterior noises. If those get picked up, I have a feeling they will. I've done my best to sort of sequester myself in an area that doesn't record that kind of stuff, but um, this today's going to be a little noisier than usual. I don't have an alternative Right now, my week is pretty packed, so this is this is what I got. Uh, so I do apologize if you hear some banging around and stuff. I've I've done my best, and I'll do my best to kind of noise cancel that. But anyways, what I was saying was, so you know, getting back to what I was talking about, being able to disassociate from that, I think just shows real growth for me. But it also it's it's a reminder that my past, as much as I want people to feel the same way, my past is not always a reflection of me. You know, I don't have to live in that past. Well, I can still tell that story and it's still something that affects me. And those events are very significant to my life. They don't rule me anymore. Like they don't, there's no like associated trauma anymore, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I've explored that subject so much in my life and have told that story so often and have moved away so far from it that, yeah, it's like something else somebody else lived through. And, you know, the person I was talking to was like, your life is, you know, it could be a movie. And I don't see that. Like, I don't see, this is just things that happen to me. Like, they're not really anything that I don't put them up against what other people have gone through. And that's, that's a change too. I used to kind of compare myself to others. I mean, my envy and my jealousy led to me going to prison or had a lot to do with it. Even getting out, you know, there was a lot of what are other 27 year olds, 28 year olds, whatever doing with their life. And how am I compared to that? Like my success was a result of what I thought others successes were at my age. And it still kind of is, but I think now I've moved even so far away from that, that like, this is just my life. This is it's where I'm at currently. And I'm pretty okay with that. Yeah, I'm very okay with that. I'm I'm in a good place. And I've I probably have sort of harped on that, but it was more interesting to think after that share and realize, you know, it'd been four or five days after the sort of anniversary of this time. Yeah, just not really having a lot of significance there it was an eye opener. It's just sort of put things in perspective. It, I guess was a way of checking in. It's a different kind of checking in than I usually do or did at that period of time uh, throughout the years. But it's uh, it's nice to know that you can bury some of the past and and have it be a burial uh, of positivity. It doesn't mean that you know that I'm I'm waiting for it to be dug up and it it's not something that is going to harm me later. You know, I, I think I've explored it enough and moved away from it enough that it doesn't, yeah, it just doesn't hold sway. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, I figure I'll, I probably will continue to do these sort of little mini check-ins before getting into the reading, uh, just to kind of, for myself, gauge where I'm at. You know, it's always nice to be able to look back on these and sort of see the progress I've made. But, you know, I just sort of check in with folks and let them know what kind of events have occurred if there are any and see where things are going right now things are still going pretty steadily moving forward i'm going to try to get a couple recordings under the belt so i can be nice and ahead really actually focus time and energy on getting hopefully this out to folks uh, in an organic way i've been trying to avoid doing the actual like hard press advertising like at the launch i did a little bit i spent like 10 bucks or something to try to get this out there to folks but you know my numbers have been very steady and while they're fairly small, which is fine, the people that I've reached are the ones that need it. And I just want to see about getting these uh, these podcasts out to other folks that maybe aren't finding it through different searches or whatever. That's part of why I did the, the other podcast. And I'm probably going to be guesting on, on other shows. And that's what will help when I start getting other folks on. But something else that will help is if you know of anybody that you think might be interested in this. Or if you're in a, like a Facebook group or something like that. And you think others might be interested in this. You know, please share. Like let, let other people get a chance to listen. They can come to their own conclusions if they like it or not. But the, the more the merrier. I it, I don't mind if they're, you know, religious or not, like or if they're just in doubt or, you know, if you think someone's just going to want to 
kind of roasted. I, I don't really care. Just get this out there. Um, I don't want to start spamming it. I don't think I ever will. Uh, but it is kind of a challenge for me to work my way into different groups and then slowly organically bring this up in conversation. And like the worst part for me has always been the marketing. I'm not a very good salesman. Uh, I'm a good presenter of information, but I do not do well with like confrontational feeling sales, I guess is like how I would describe that. I don't know. I, I feel weird sharing my own things. That's why I didn't work as an artist. I, I had a hard time marketing my own work because I didn't want, it's a weird ego thing. Like, I don't want to be like, my stuff is so good. You should, you should like it. And that's not, because that's just not how my personality is. I just want the stuff to speak for itself. But, you know, these podcasts can't speak for themselves if nobody's listening. So, you know, go go out, share it if you can, please. Um, if you're a new listener and you want to reach out to me, you can reach me at uh, on Facebook at an atheist reads the big book of AA. There's a page that's just a direct link to kind of like the business page. And then there's a group that I'm hoping to get a little bit more active once I understand a little bit more about how that stuff works. I am also on Twitter at an atheist in you can also email me at one atheist in aa at gmail.com uh, and you can find me on instagram at atheist underscore in underscore aa and i'm gonna be honest man my uh, my roommate's full contact exhibition sport version of cooking downstairs is certainly testing my patience uh, and i really hope it's not affecting the recording Without further ado, let's get into the Stoic reading. Again, for those who are new, I like to start the whole podcast after my little like ramble uh, with the Stoic reading, uh, the Daily Stoic. It's it's a collection of quotes and stuff put together by Ryan Holiday and Stephen Hanselman. Uh, everything is pulled from Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, other you know Stoics from the past. While some of the language that they might use on occasion sounds religious, you know they speak of gods and. Uh, energies and stuff like that. Um, it's like an ancient times version that's been, I don't know, changed and molded into other things. And and for me, it doesn't really harm the message. Usually, um, it's not telling me that I have to believe in some sort of metaphysical thing. Uh, it's just sort of pointing out different aspects of morality and usually gets me thinking. Uh, sometimes I don't agree with you know what Ryan Holiday or Stephen Hanselman have to say about the quote. Sometimes I get something completely different. Uh, sometimes it's dead on. Sometimes I don't fully understand either thing. And while I might not, it still gets me thinking about something, at least something different. So uh, without further ado, this will be for October 5th when this episode comes out. I said October 4th earlier. You guys know when it'll come out because that's when it'll be released. <clears throat> so apologize for getting that mixed up. Uh, words can't be unsaid. Better to trip with the feet than with the tongue. Zeno, quoted in Diagnesis Laertius, I think, Lives of the Eminent Philosophers 7-1-26. I don't know what that date actually means, or if that is a date, that's always after one of these quotes. You can always get up after you fall, but remember, what has been said can never be unsaid, especially cruel and hurtful things. Yeah, in my drinking history, that is definitely something that uh, I, I think I knew. I mean, I've always known words are impactful. I've it was the, you know, the loud kid in the back of the classroom. I was sarcastic. My um I was not physically superior in any kind of a way or even able to really physically handle myself in a fight or anything like that up until I was forced to. And so I used my my words, man. I was really good at tearing people down with my words and knew they hurt and as time progressed and I got more adept at fucking destroying people with the way that I said things, uh, my drinking would bring the worst of that out. I would learn regularly that there is no way to apologize out of saying something cruel to somebody. That I learned this because it was happening to me. Somebody would say something cruel to me, and it's and it's something that would stick with me for for years. And, and this was coming from somebody that would hear, as an example, praise for my artwork. I would never hear those things. They would never really stick. But the ones that did are the ones that, that were, were cruel and that I thought had some truth behind them and were maybe personal. And as sensitive as I was, I was insensitive to how harmful I could be. That was something that, you know, when I was doing the, the work, the steps, my most of my altercations, most of my instances of causing harm were of the verbal variety. There, I was at times verbally abusive to partners, you know, and while 
other times, different partners might have been verbally abusive to me. None of that negates what harm I did, even though I would present, pretend like it, it kind of balanced it out. You know, there was like this sort of karmic, that's a word, is that a word? There's some sort of like karma associated with the harm that was done. I was mean to other people and people were mean to me. And so it's just this never ending back and forth. And that's just not how things work. It's just not the way they balance out. Maybe Maybe centuries from now, we'll learn that karma is real and that is how all that stuff works. But I, I have learned that that's just not the case. While me speaking and choosing my words more carefully and how I um, communicate things with my significant other, her son, her family, my family, uh, while those things have changed and have grown healthier it wasn't from a sense that I have to do this because I think if I don't, then I'm going to have these bad things come back around and, and get me. But it wasn't an easy change. It hasn't been an easy change. I had grown so used to just being verbally defensive and uh, so sensitive in how I took things that people said that I would I would lash out in my own way with my own words. Uh, I'd grown so used to that that you know, over the last couple of years of being sober, it's, it's been a challenge sometimes to just watch myself, to hold my tongue and to just shut the fuck up. And that's like one of the biggest lessons I've really learned as far as how I carry myself is how to use my words. And the fact that it's been a challenge for me to use my words a little bit more kindly, you know, is kind of telling. Like I just, I definitely had a history of saying some really fucked up things. And the fact that I knew how hard, how, how much those could hurt, the words that people use could hurt, offhanded comments, side, side shots that people would take little jabs, or even just straightforward, you know, verbal abuse. The fact that I was still giving that out, putting that out into the world, was talking to other people that way. You know, the fact that that was how that went, you know, just shows that what you put out in the universe can have an effect on other people long term. Uh, at least that's what I took. That's how I am looking at it. What I put out there, maybe it, maybe it doesn't mean that I'm going to have this karma balance that's going to bring things back. But if a phrase can hurt me for years, then the phrases I give out can hurt others for years. And what might seem like just a, a real quick little insult could do a lot of harm. Almost always completely, completely avoided. And what's interesting is a lot of this realization has come from my interactions with my girlfriend's son. He, he can be really har harmful with the words that he uses. And he's young enough that he's not just making these up. Like he hasn't started to learn how to be as scathing as he is without it having been something he's hearing from other people, if that makes sense. Like I know he's at an age where he's starting to learn that language can be be hurtful but some of the very specific ways he's phrasing things make it seem like it's coming from somebody else which got me thinking like if he's hearing that who's he hearing it from is he hearing it from me is he hearing it from from his mom we both are fairly careful with how we talk around him but maybe it's just one of those things where i'm saying things and not even realizing it that that are that are impacting him because he's such a little sponge right now and so, you know, her and I had a conversation about the way that we talk and me and him have had conversations. You know, he, he says things to himself, like I'm such a jerk. I'm so stupid. You know, he's six years old, almost seven. Like he shouldn't really be talking to himself that way. But while I am having that conversation with him, like, Hey man, like this isn't language you should be using on yourself. Nobody calls you a jerk. Do they? Like, I don't call you a jerk. We don't put you down. We don't call you names. The realization that even at that young age, like if that's not nipped in the bud, that's how he's going to just learn to talk to himself. And that's how I talk to myself for years, putting myself down and then lashing out at other people, you know, because I felt so poorly about myself and understanding through him how important language is, just simple words, how they can stick, how they can really have a lasting effect has been uh, has been pretty eye opening. You know, I feel like I'd already been moving away from the way that I talk to people uh, of old, but it's been sort of a renewed effort now that I realize that maybe things that are being said are affecting him, even though I don't think well, we're not the ones that he's getting that kind of language from. It might be a video game. We're not sure. Just hearing, hearing that effect, you know, hearing a seven-year-old basically tell himself things like that. I'm just a stupid jerk and I should go away. Man, I used to say some just shitty things to people. And not think anything of it. And somebody did this to him. Somebody in his life, whether it through a video game that he was playing and some other kid on the other end said that shit, or, you know, maybe somebody at school that we're not aware of, somebody said that to him and now that's how he sees himself. All the praise that we can give him doesn't seem to be washing that away. It's going to take time. It takes 
10, 20, 30% more effort to wash away harmful things that have stuck than it, than it would to praise someone. I mean, that's my experience. And it seems to be his too. I, I'm thankful that I'm in a place now where I'm open to this. Like I'm hearing myself talk and I'm, I'm seeing how my words can, can really have an effect. He's going through this. I'm, I'm in a great place for this. Like his mom is in a good place for this. We are in a good couple, uh, you know, significant other place for this, that we can, we can help him through this. And that wasn't always the case. You know, my sobriety has definitely been a big factor in, in bringing me to a, a place in my life where I, I'm now able to use my words in a better way. And I understand the effects I have fully. And I am more capable of helping him navigate that. And I'm thankful for that. Because, yeah, you, you, kid, the kid falls down and scrapes his knee, gets back up. It's nothing. No big deal. He doesn't even remember it. You know, he broke his finger uh, six months ago and forgot all about it until we passed by the place where he broke his finger. But whoever called him a jerk, you know, he, he it's taken some work to get him to stop talking to himself that way. So I don't know if anybody got really anything out of that. I know for me that the language stuff is always really important. I've probably mentioned that kind of stuff before talking to yourself, how you say things to yourself is so important in early recovery and in long-term recovery, just in general. So yeah. So I like, I like this kind of stuff when it comes to the Stoics, they had a very good grasp of the language you use on yourself and the language therefore you use on others and how important that can be. Uh, and I think it's, uh, we are a sensitive lot us folks in recovery, maybe in general in life, but I can only really speak for myself in recovery, of course. Uh, but I have experienced a lot of other sensitive folks and a lot of that comes down to language and how we use it. So if you got something out of that, share it with me, reach out to me on those social media handles. I, I mentioned before, um, if you disagree, uh, with me, then, you know, that that's fine as well. I'm, I'm always open to a conversation and I'm always open to learn some new things. So without any more preamble here. Let's get into the actual reading. So we are finishing out working with others. Uh, again, this is pretty important chapter, mainly because it really showcases how important step 12 is. Step 12 is the only step that really gets its own full chapter. And there is so much emphasis on the ideal of helping the next person in recovery to help yourself stay in recovery that it makes it pretty clear that that is the cornerstone, the backbone of this program. You can stay sober and probably lead a, an incredibly productive life uh, without ever stepping foot in a recovery program. That's touched on in the book. It's mentioned in plenty of recovery, you know, programs. But there is something to be said about providing service to somebody else, and that service being helping them stay sober, and how, and what that imp that how that impacts your own sobriety, my own sobriety. So um, again, speaking only for myself, I am. At a point in my recovery right now where I probably, I feel like, or I'm hearing the whispers in, in the back of my head that I could probably leave AA and go into maybe smart recovery or, or maybe life ring and still get kind of the same thing from that. But for me, when I help somebody and I am of service, something about my personal life changes and always gets stronger. So that's what kind of keeps me here in AA and probably will keep me sort of magnetized to it is this handing it over to the next person. And seeing them recover and seeing this program work in others and seeing that growth and being a part of it. I'm not responsible. I'm not responsible for anybody's recovery. Being a part of somebody else's recovery is pretty amazing. You know, having someone say, I saw you, you know, in a meeting and you said something that really impacted me, or I saw, I heard a speaker tape that really impacted me. I, you know, I met this person. I met so-and-so. I, I heard this story. It helped me when I really needed to to be helped. That's, that's the, if there was a spirituality, that's, that's it. So I really like this chapter, uh, for the most part, I think it's, again, I think it's just the meat of all this. I can't help anybody if I'm in a shitty place. So I work on myself, I get to a better place and then I help someone else. We are on page 96. I'm not sure what version of the book you guys, you folk might be reading from. I am reading from the app, the AA big book. It's available at least on Android. I'm sure it's available on other apps, stores. Uh, there is a, I like it because there's not only the big book for free uh, and in your pocket, anytime you need it, you can highlight it. You can zoom in, zoom out. You can make adjustments. You can put comments on there if you want to. Um, so you can kind of just do in this book what you could do in a written book. While not a replacement, I think having a written book is still is still useful. 
the, it is it is nice to have this in the pocket. It also has a little community. So if you want to interact with folks in there, you can. There's a hotline you can call. There are other resources to other podcasts, and there's plenty of really great ones in there to check out. Uh, there's even, I think, a literature list. The 12 Steps and 12 Traditions is in there. So there's a lot of really good stuff in this book, uh, this little app. So I highly recommend it. Uh, if you're following along in a book, I'm not sure exactly what. I think this is the third revised edition. I, I'm not sure. But anyways, it's about middle way in working with others. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. Now, that's true. I don't think it is a matter of necessarily depression or desperation, excuse me. But some people, you know, whether or not they're desperate or not, just might not want to work with you. And that's fine, too. We got to be able to to take that and roll with those punches. If our brand of recovery isn't what others want, uh, then, yeah, like it says, just move on to the next person. Don't dismiss that person. That, I think, is very important. Uh, but don't don't see it as a challenge to get them to to, you know, change their mind. Like, just accept it as is and move on. I mean, there's no reason to be obsessed with converting somebody to this program. That's where it becomes weird and kind of culty. Let, you know, that's not it's not necessary either. If somebody is ready to get sober and you've presented all the information to them, then there's a good chance they're going to reach out to you. If not, they're going to reach out to somebody else because of what you did. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. And yeah, I mean, that's part of it. You know, you don't want to you don't want to end up putting so much emphasis on one person that that is resistant to any kind of change that you miss out on an opportunity to help somebody else. But also you don't want to just if you keep pestering somebody, they're not going to be interested in AA. I, I wouldn't be if somebody had just kept trying to drive this stuff down my throat when I wasn't ready for it or any kind of recovery. Suppose now you are making your second visit to a man. He has read this volume and says he is prepared to go through with 12 steps of the program of recovery. Having had the experience yourself, you can give him much practical advice. Let him know you are available if he wishes to make a decision and tell his story, but do not insist upon it if he prefers to consult someone else. That's very important. Now, when I met with my first sponsor, this next, this latest go around, you know, his first commitment was to make sure that I was really serious about this was to just start calling him in the morning for a couple seconds. Like, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Uh, just checking in. We had kind of a ritual that we went through. This made it a lot easier for me to call him when I did need to. And then over time, that turned into us meeting regularly once a week to work on the book. And my willingness to be committed to that had a lot to do with my recovery having a lot of impact, you know, early on. And the, the bond that we had was persistent. Even though we don't do this any longer after the two years of doing it, I think we're both still, you know, pretty close friends. Um, but more importantly, having that subtle commitment with somebody else really had a lot to do with my early recovery just sticking, I think, personally. Not everybody needs that. Not everybody needs to meet once a week. Not everybody needs to have a set schedule. Me and my current sponsor don't have that. We meet kind of whenever we can, and that seems to work just fine. That's what I need now. So take that into consideration, too. You know, it is, I think, important to kind of just give someone that set, like, call me at two on Monday. And if they're not really interested in calling at two on Monday and you, you feel like they're just not really that committed, then that's up to you. I mean, I wouldn't continue to try to really hard press work for somebody. I'm not going to force someone to do this program. I'm not going to force them to show up. You know, I'm not going to force them to recover. And if they're not willing to just call once a week, then that tells me that maybe this isn't something they're really prepared for. That might seem harsh, but if you're, if I, if I was at the place where I was <laughs> that led up to my, my uh, suicide attempt and I wanted to quit so desperately that I was like crying myself into a, a puddle on the floor and was literally destroying every aspect of my life. And someone was like, just call me once a week and I can give you a, an opportunity to, you know, to recover from this. And I was like, nah, that seems like too hard of a, a commitment and therefore you're an asshole and this program sucks. I think that's, that's on the, the person not recovering. Like it's not too hard of an ask back to the reading. He may be broken homeless. If he is, you may, you might try to help him about getting a job or give him a little financial assistance. Uh, I, personally, I would refrain from the financial assistance. 
I don't think that's necessary. While it might seem, you know, like buy him a burger or something, but there are so many resources in this in this city. You know, if you, I, having had been homeless and you know, I'm an ex-con, so I've been around a lot of different types of folks. There are people that are just out there trying to get advantage, take advantage. I, we, we've had people just only come to the meeting for the free coffee. They are not interested in the AA stuff. Uh, they do not participate. They just sit by the coffee machine. They get their free coffee, a couple cookies, and they go. There's going to be people in this program that are like that. That are like, oh, if I say certain things, then I'm going to get certain things. And it might not be recovery that they're looking for. So just use your best judgment. You know, don't start throwing money at somebody in the hopes that that's going to get them. You're not trying to bribe people to do this either. Uh, back to the reading. But you should not deprive your family or creditors of money they should have. Perhaps you will want to take the man into your home for a few days. But be sure you use discretion. I personally, again, probably wouldn't do this. I would not ask my sponsor, my previous sponsor or current one, for a place to stay. Like, I just, I don't think that that's part of how this program works. I might ask them where I could find a place to stay. Um, or like if I had a car, like, hey, can I park my car, you know, in your parking lot? Like, if it were that bad, if, it, if things have gotten that bad. But I think it's it's an overstep for me personally to expect your sponsor to provide this kind of stuff for you. Be certain he will be welcomed by your family and that he's not trying to impose upon you for money, connections, or shelter. Permit that and you only harm him. You'll be making it possible for him to be insincere. You may be aiding in his destruction rather than his recovery. Never avoid these responsibilities, but be sure you're doing the right thing if you assume them. Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You have to act a good Samaritan every day if need be. It may mean the loss of many nights sleep, great interference with your pleasures, interruptions to your business. It may mean sharing your money in your home, counseling frantic wives and relatives, innumerable trips to police courts, sanitariums, hospitals, jails, and asylums. Your phone may jangle all any time of the day or night. Your wife may sometimes say she is neglected. A drunk may smash the furniture in your home or burn a mattress. What? You you may have to fight with him if he is violent. Okay, see, uh, yeah, I'm going to finish this out and we're going to talk about this. Sometimes you will have to call a doctor and administer sedatives under his direction. I, that's not ever going to happen. And this, this, is, this is some old-timey shit that just doesn't happen anymore. You, you should not be in a position, and I will say this as advice to others, not just speaking for myself. You should not be in a position where you have drunks burning mattresses in your house. That's not quite how this should be working. Back in the day, the only other option was to lock them up in an actual sanitarium, which they've discussed and have horrible treatments, you know, just a terrible experience. If if you're letting people into your home and they're doing this kind of stuff, that's I think that's too far. I don't think that's a requirement. That isn't a requirement for me. That isn't something that I'm going to feel comfortable with. This is where I might have some issues in the program. Somebody might say that well, you're just going to allow someone to die then. And I will kindly tell them to fuck off. Like my safety and my, my security in life is also of concern. And if putting myself at risk like that physical risk and harm, uh, is a possibility that I'm not going to take that risk. I'm going to, I'm going to definitely protect myself just like we're supposed to protect ourselves from emotional toxicity. We should definitely be capable of protecting ourselves from the potential for violence. There are rehabs out there and a lot of resources out there for people to stay. And I don't feel that I'm doing my recovery to service or AA's as a disservice if I'm not just picking people up off the streets and having them move right in. That's we're going to have a very big difference of opinion on that one if if that's how I am supposed to act in recovery. Like giving up literally all the things that I have gained in my recovery uh, as a potential sacrifice to get one other person sober is not how I think this program should be. And that kind of feels like what they're going with here. Yeah, sometimes you will call a doctor and administer sedatives. No, no, you won't. No, you won't. Absolutely not. Do not start giving people drugs <laughs> from your home who are burning couches and shit. Like that's what that's such a weird time that this had to be back then. Um, occasionally, you'll have to meet such conditions. No. No, another time you may have to send for the police or an ambulance. Now, there might be times in a meeting where somebody's acted a fool and you have to call the cops. I've had to one time uh, call the cops because somebody was acting a fool. But no, I don't think we're at a, ploy at a point in our societal needs where that, that kind of thing is required. Don't put yourself at that kind of risk. 
Uh, We seldom, back to the reading, we seldom allow an alcoholic to live in our homes for long at a time. It is not good for him, and it sometimes creates serious complications in a family. Yeah, it would, especially if they're catching your mattresses and shit on fire. Though an alcoholic does not respond, there is no reason why you should neglect his family. You should continue to be friendly to them. The family should be offered your way of life. Should they accept and uh, practice spiritual principles, there is a much better change that the head of the family will recover. Chance. Much better chance. Okay, that didn't didn't spell it right. And even though he continues to drink, the family will find life more bearable. I don't know how how involved folks need to really be in other people's families. I think this also came from a, a time where communities were a little bit more involved in each other's shit. I don't think that if you're helping somebody recover that you also need to start reaching out to their family. I think that just starts to get a little weird. Again, that's now. Back then, maybe it was perfectly natural that you'd call, you know, dude's wife and be like, hey, we're helping this guy get sober. He's having a hard time with it and might not actually recover. But you want to go to an Al-Anon meeting? We'll take you. You can come hang out with us and start folding them in. Like, uh, again, like use discretion. But I think that that's kind of a little past what's necessary. Naturally, if you end up becoming close to people, then get close with people, like become friends and become friendly that way. But this is a, this is speaking as if a initial the initial meeting with somebody who is interested in quitting, then ingratiating yourself into their family situation and into their home life. That seems a little bit more premature and a little bit unnecessary and aggressive. Back to the reading. For the type of alcoholic who is able and willing to get well, little charity, in the ordinary sense of the word, is needed or wanted. The men who cry for money and shelter before conquering alcohol are on the wrong track. Yet we do go to the extreme, great extremes to provide uh, each other with these very things, when such action is warranted. This may seem inconsistent, but we think it is not. It is not a matter of giving that is in question, but when and how to give. Exactly. Perfect. I can't fucking agree with that more. That often makes the difference between failure and success. The minute we put our work on a service plane, the alcoholic commences to rely upon our assistance rather than upon God. He claims for this or that, claiming he cannot master alcohol until his material needs are cared for. Nonsense. Some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. Job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop drinking, so long as we place endurance upon other people ahead of dependence on God. Okay, so maybe that's not really true, but the sentiment before this, the underlying sentiment. I've, I've mentioned this to others who are like, I'm not really sure if I can do all this to quit. Well, the amount of bullshit that I put myself through in order to drink uh, in compared to, in comparison to the requirements to stay sober aren't even a, it's not even a contest. There were things that I would do that are absurd to make sure that I would go, you know, to, to drink loss of sleep being just the minimal one. Like I would go three hours. I would have three hours of sleep. Because I would keep convincing myself that I could stay up a little bit later uh, and get more alcohol in me. And then when I wake up, I was still intoxicated from the night before and I would drive to work just to ensure that I would continue to drink. I wasn't working because I wanted to do a good job. I was working because that paycheck ensured that I would drink. If I if I wasn't sure what kind of a party I was about to go to, I would get a pint and I would finish that off before going to the party just to make sure that I got a certain level of intoxicated. I would hide alcohol. I would, you know, near the end, I would start sneaking drinks. I would start lying. I would convince other people that I wasn't drinking at all so that I could drink more. I would I would hide other people's alcohol so I could drink it later. Like I, I would do all kinds of absurd, weird, irrational things. Uh, and sure as shit, I should be willing to do pretty much anything to stay sober. And uh, that means, you know, suffering through not having a job for a little bit. I mean, if I can suffer through being homeless while drinking, then I could suffer through it sober. Burn this idea in the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts in God and clean house. I mean, the okay, seriously, the only condition is that you just clean house. Just stop being an asshole. Clean house. God wasn't there when, you know, I was struggling on the streets. He wasn't there when I tried to stab my friend. Uh, and if he was, and that was some sort of a lesson, fuck that guy. So where I'm at specifically, obviously made that very clear is, uh, just, just trust in this process, staying sober and being better and helping others. And that is the condition. That is the part clean house and trust the process. Now the domestic problem. There may be divorce, separation, or just strained relations. When your prospect has made such uh, reparation as he can to his family and has thoroughly explained to them the new principles by which he is living, he should proceed to put those principles into action at home. That should be the first place. I'm going to say that right now. Don't 
don't go about being a, a better employee and a better friend and then eventually get around to being a better husband. If you have family at home and you have kids, those are your priority. 1000%. Whatever it takes to get that situation cleaned, that should be the first situation that you clean after you do your own housekeeping. That is if he is lucky to have a home. Though his family be at fault in many respects, he should not be concerned about that. Absolutely not. Uh, we can, you know, work through that part later. Right now, it's just it's just a focus on you. He should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration. And and that's demonstration is a very important word, not spiritual verbosity. Don't just like speak the words and then still be an asshole. Like the demonstration and the lack of expectation that the people in your life are just going to suddenly come around and perfectly live. You know, they're all oh, your cure to this whole problem. We're just going to forget everything that you did before this. The demonstration also includes the lack of expectation of anything in on their part. It's said in this book before, and it'll probably say it again, if getting sober and being kinder and doing all the things that this program you know, and any other program uh, sort of uh, suggests that you do, if doing those still doesn't keep your family and that still breaks, that isn't a failing of the program. It's just some things cannot be just cured and forgotten and fixed, but being in a place where you're in recovery, if the family should break, at least you're prepared for that. You can, you can deal with that while recovering. It's not something that people can deal with when they're drinking. It just really isn't. Your family wouldn't be in a destructive period while you were drinking if that were the case. You know what I mean? Like if the drinking got it to the point to where even after sobriety, they're still willing to leave, getting drunk's not going to fucking help that. Argument and fault finding are to be avoided like the plague. In many homes, this is a difficult thing to do, but it must be done if any results are to be expected. If persisted in for a few months, the effect on a man's family is sure to be great. The most incompatible people discover that they have basic... Uh, they have a basis upon which they can meet. Little by little, the family may see their own defects and admit them. Again, this, this needs to happen without expectation. It could be that relationships were built on drinking. Your significant other may not be willing to get sober or become recovered in their own way. That needs to be fully, uh, uh, you know, you looked at. Like, it has to be something that can just happen. Like, you can't expect the other person to now be sober because you found your way. That's an unreasonable expectation. And that will have to be looked at. There is a possibility that some relationships just aren't going to survive recovery because the other person refuses to recover. These can then be discussed in an atmosphere of health, helpfulness and friendliness. After they have seen tangible results, the family will present, uh, perhaps want to go along. These things will come to pass naturally and in good time provided, however, the alcoholic continues to demonstrate that he can be sober, considerate, and helpful regardless of what anyone says or does. Again, that's the important thing. Don't go into these interactions with expectations. This is the only thing that's worked for me is, is really understanding how my expectations impact me. And that's, that's, that's just kind of what it's saying here. You know, I can be as sober as I want to be, but I can't expect people to treat me a certain way because of it. Of course, we all fall much below this standard many times, but we must try to repair the damage immediately lest we pay the penalty by a spree. If there be divorce or separation, there should be no undue haste for the couple to get together. The man should be sure of his recovery. The wife should fully understand his new way of life. If their old relationship is to be resumed, it must be on a better basis since the former did not work. Yes, don't rush right back in. Just, I'm cured of the disease of alcoholism. And then expect everything to get back to normal. There's so much stuff to work through. And it should take time. And it should, you know, happen naturally. This means a new attitude and spirit all around. Sometimes it is to the best interests of all concerned that a couple remain apart. Obviously, no rule can be laid down. Let the alcoholic continue his program day by day. When the time for living together has come, it will be apparent to both parties. If, if it's to even happen. Let no alcoholic say he cannot recover unless he has his family back. This just isn't so. In some cases, the wife will never come back for one reason or another. Remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people. Again, I'm going to say that again. It is not dependent upon other people. I'm adding the word other. Your recovery is only dependent on you. I see and hear so many people say, well, I'm doing this for my kids. I'm doing this for my wife. I'm doing this for my grandparents. It's putting so much responsibility on other people. It's no different than hoisting that responsibility on God. Like you're the only person that can be in control of your recovery. That's just the plain bottom line. Nobody else. Which also means not giving anybody the power over your recovery. Saying this is for your kids, well, fuck, man. In a few years, maybe they decide that they don't want anything to do with you, even in recovery. So what? You're just gonna you're just gonna fuck off and go back to drinking? Like, why would you put somebody else in control of that? Even God, whatever that might be. 
Like, that seems so dangerous and risky. People harm each other. We just talked about that at the beginning of this podcast. Your significant other, if that's the person you're trying to save a relationship with, could cheat on you, could leave you, could decide that they no longer love you. And now the only person that you felt like you were getting sober for is no longer that person. You're just going to go out and drink. That seems that seems ridiculous and dangerous. Seriously. And of course, the book says it is dependent upon his relationship with God, which I don't. Yeah, whatever. We have seen men get well whose families have not returned at all. We have seen others slip when the family came back too soon. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which come to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Now, something that might be missed because of the whole God stuff is just, just a couple sentences before that. It says... Basically, don't, as a person, do as a sponsor, don't get so caught up in your sponsee's bullshit that you get swept under it as well. Your road needs to be covered and, and taken care of constantly. Working with, with others isn't a replacement for the program. It's just another step of it. So that means that you still got to be clean in your own house and then helping this person as much as you can to at least give them the opportunity to clean their own. If you get so embroiled, and that's where I think it's like you can't have them living with you. I think that's a bad idea. You can't start getting involved with their family. Like that, That's where it starts to become difficult to keep those boundaries in place if you're basically living with the people that you're recovery, you know, helping recover. It just seems like such a weird dynamic to include in this book and a weird message to put out. But basically, if you're not taking care of your own shit and you're trying to help somebody stay sober, uh, you're going to get sucked into their drama. It's pretty much guaranteed. I mean, that's just how people work. So keep those boundaries up. Continue to maintain your sidewalk. Continue to maintain your recovery. That way, when they do stumble and trip and fall, you're there to help them. You're not falling with them. That's a big difference. Back to the reading. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. When working with a man and his family, you should take care not to participate in their quarrels. Okay, it's going to share a little bit what I just talked about. You may spoil your chance of being helpful if you do, but urge upon a man's family that he has been a very sick person and should be treated accordingly. Okay, see, to me, that's kind of co-signing their bullshit. If the family reaches out to you for guidance, steer them to Al-Anon. Unless you are also an Al-Anon, or maybe your significant other is an Al-Anon, and they can help them there. Uh, this, some of this advice is just, I think, honestly terrible. <laughs> you shouldn't be telling the family, like, give him a break. He's just a drunk. He's just sick. Like, that's that I don't think is your place uh, or our place, uh, sponsor's place. It's just a little bit of overstepping. You should point out that his defects of character are not going to disappear overnight. Show them that he has entered upon a period of growth. Ask them to remember when they are impatient the blessed fact of his sobriety. Now, I have talked with people whose significant others I was working with, or at least, you know, I had spoken with who were struggling and that's, I've shared some advice like, Hey, you know, he's having a hard time, but he's, he's working on some stuff, but anything past very, very simple blase interactions are going to start getting into a personal territory of the work that you're putting in with this other person. And that's not really yours to share. That's where I say they should, you know, my usual advice is I'm not really equipped to help you through this. Um, but Al-Anon can, and there's people there that are a little bit more adept at that as well as not having a personal stake in the matter. Like you you can still be somebody's friend, give them consolation, but just be very mindful of the fact that if you're working with somebody, anything really beyond just sharing that you're uh, their sponsor is kind of now broaching personal subject matter. If you have been successful in solving your own domestic problems, tell the newcomer's family how that was accomplished. In this way, you can set them on the right track without becoming critical of them. The story of how you and your wife settled your difficulties is worth any amount of criticism. What? I don't, yeah, that's not a, that's a no for me. If it happens in normal conversation, or if they start to learn of that through just hearing your story, that might be different, but telling them like, ah, fuck, I fixed shit with my wife. Yeah, I'm sure he'll fix it with you. That's, it just seems weird to me. Assuming we are spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics are not supposed to do. I will say that if you're in a situation where your significant other is not a drinker, your sponsor's situation is similar in that regard, then having your wife talk to his wife wouldn't be unreasonable if there is that matter of like, my wife doesn't think this is going to work. She's trying to walk out the door. That That's different. 
like I think, but inserting yourself in that situation and saying, I fixed stuff with my wife. Uh, so you need to give him a chance, like speaking for him, like that just starts to get so weird. Assuming we're spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics are not supposed to do. People have said, we must not go where liquor is served. We must not go, uh, we must not have it in our homes. We must shun friends who drink. We must avoid moving pictures which show drinking scenes. We must not go into bars. Our friends must hide their bottles if we go to their houses. We mustn't think or, or be reminded about alcohol at all. Our experience shows that this is not necessarily so. My personal experience definitely shows that. While I was told plenty of times that I was flirting with disaster, I had spent some time with some, you know, I made friends that worked at a bar, went there fairly often. I'd have some food, I'd sing a little karaoke, and I'd, you know, hit on some girls and go home. Like, for me, I felt secure, but I also had buddies there. Like, my friend that I would do this with knew that I was in recovery, and in a lot of instances would sort of defend my honor, quote unquote. If people were trying to be persistent about me drinking, he'd be like, he just doesn't drink, and he would kind of double down with that. It never really became you know, much of an issue, though. Now, that doesn't mean that it was always comfortable. If it got uncomfortable, I left, you know, but I never was in a situation where I was overstepping for the sake of overstepping. Okay, that's not true. There was a couple times where I was out at a party and things got a little weird and I didn't go home. But I reflected on that, shared that with my sponsor and then made adjustments next next time. The idea that I can't do things specifically because somebody else might be doing a thing that might trigger me is, is just not an aspect of a recovery that I have to really consider much anymore. Now, my friends and my family and my SO, they do consider that. You know, my significant other was making food and she's like, hey, this is going to have wine in it. Is that okay? And for me, that's fine. She's like, well, I just don't really want to have it in my hat, you know, in the house if it's going to be an issue. And I, you know, I thought about it and kind of reflected on it. I was like, well, it's not, I'm not going to drink it. You know, so it's fine. I have forgotten it's there until just now. Like, it's not really because that's where my recovery is. I have to check in on those things, though. And, and I and I do not make that decision for anybody else. I don't decide for other people that, well, because I can go to a bar, you can too. My triggers are completely different for other people's triggers. I don't have many. I don't think I have any at the moment. I've really tried to reflect on what could be a trigger so that I would know ahead of time. Uh, but that's not really something that I really have to worry about. My triggers come from deep depressions. <laughs> so as long as I'm working actively on that kind of stuff, I think I'm fine. But it is worth considering. If somebody has a birthday coming up and they're having it at a bar... Like, let the person know, hey, I'm in recovery, so I'm going to come by. But if I get uncomfortable and I leave, it's not anything to do with you. Like, let them know. If they're your friend, they're going to understand and they're going to respect that. And if they don't respect that, then reconsider whether or not that's really a friend. Uh, Back to the reading. We meet these conditions every day. An alcoholic who cannot meet them still has an alcoholic mind. There is something the matter with his spiritual status. His only chance for sobriety would be someplace like the Greenland Ice Cap, And even there, an Eskimo might turn up with a bottle of scotch and ruin everything. Ask any woman who has sent her husband to distant places on the theory he would escape the alcohol problem. And man, is that a good point? You know, like you can't avoid it. You can't avoid alcohol. You can't even go shop for shit for your house without some sign saying it's one o'clock. It's wine 30 or whatever, or some, you know, beer commercial or, or, or something along those lines. And that's a part of this, this whole process is being able to look at that stuff and, and have your relationship with what it's offering change. In our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism, which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. And they're saying this back in the day when like prohibition was still kind of hot off the heels here. Like they were just, they just got done having to drink, you know, alcohol made in bathtubs, basically in speakeasies, uh, and then have it explode into where it's fucking everywhere. You know, people were being prescribed it. People were advertising it on everything. It was, it was, you know, not unreasonable for kids to drink. And then, you know, I look at now and I look at like the kind of advertising that they have around alcohol, the kind of fun that they propose you can have. And I think this just is just as important now. Like the idea hasn't changed. We can't escape it. We can only change how our relationship with it continues. Uh, Back to the reading. We have tried these methods. These attempts to do the impossible have always failed. So our rule is to not avoid a place where there is drinking if we have a legitimate reason for being there. That includes bars, nightclubs, dances, receptions, weddings, even plain ordinary whoopee parties, which was a thing. There was really things they called whoopee parties. 
Uh, it's just a party. They just also use the word whoopee, I guess, for them. Uh, to a person who has had experience with an alcoholic, this may seem like tempting providence, but it isn't. Now again, have a legitimate reason. Part of why people thought I was sort of flirting with disaster when I was going to bars was it didn't seem like I had legitimate reasons to be there. I personally did because I was overcoming some strong social anxieties that I felt were reasonable to overcome when I had kind of a support group there. I had friends there that were kind of caring for me. They would make sure that I wasn't going to do anything stupid uh, while I also ensured that they weren't doing anything stupid while I drank. There are plenty of other ways I guess I could have put my social anxiety stuff to the test, but I felt that that was the way uh, to do it. I got to know the staff there. They got to know that I drank ginger beer. They started stocking ginger beer for me. So I had an opportunity to feel kind of like a local regular. And I still talk to some of the people that work there. I still talk to some of the bar staff that works. I built relationships with people. And that was really important to me that I was able to do that outside of AA, even though I wanted AA for the fellowship. I also wanted to know that I could exist in the real world without it being like this big, scary place that I had to be fearful about at every corner. You will note that we made an important qualification. Therefore, ask yourself on each occasion, have I any good social business or personal reason for going to this place? Or am I expecting to steal a little vicarious pleasure from the atmosphere of such places? It's fine to steal that vicarious pleasure as long as you're not drinking. Don't romanticize the drink. I usually very quickly get tired of alcohol and the people drinking it, I, but not out of like, ah, it's going to make me drink because drunk people are kind of obnoxious and it takes a certain kind of patience to be around that. But that doesn't mean it's going to lead me to drinking. It usually just means, hey, it's time to go. If you answer these questions satisfactorily, you need have no apprehension. Go or stay away, whichever seems best. Uh, and I will add, check in with your sponsor, check in with somebody else in recovery whose opinion you, you share, uh, or trust, like just check in like, Hey, I'm about to go to this bar, uh, because I have a date and this girl's going there and she doesn't know that I'm in recovery. Is that okay? Probably like, what does your sponsor think of that? And this isn't like get permission from somebody to do a thing. It's bouncing your information off somebody else and having an unbiased response. That's, that's what that is. So I hope people understand that the sponsor-sponsor relationship isn't like, should not be like you calling your sponsor and being like, hey, is this fine? Yeah, I give you permission to do that. Usually the sponsor, if they're reasonable, should just ask some questions. Like, well, how do you feel about it? How was your day? Like, are you in a good headspace? Uh, do you have my phone number handy? Now that I know that you're going to a bar and you feel a little apprehensive, I will keep my phone on me and I'll have the volume turned up and I'll make sure that I'm a little bit more available in case you need me. And if, and if you can't reach me, do you have somebody else that you can reach? Things like that. Like just, you know, just ask questions, see where they're at, see where their headspace is at. If they seem nervous and unreasonable about it, they'd be like, Hey, I mean, is this worth you risk risking your, your sobriety for? Like it's, it doesn't have to be a, uh, no, I don't think you should do that. You should, you should go home. This is a bad idea for you. That's where I think the sponsor sponsor relationship can kind of get a little, parental and that's not how it should be go or stay away whichever seems best but be sure you're on solid spiritual ground before you start and that your motive in doing uh, in going is thoroughly good do not think of what you will get out of the occasion think of what you will bring to it but if you are shaky you had better work with another alcoholic why sit with a long face in places where there is drinking, sighing about the good old days? If it is a happy occasion, try to increase the pleasure of those there. If a business occasion, go and attend to your business enthusiastically. If you are with a person who wants to eat in a bar, by all means go along. Let your friends know they are not to change their habits on your account. I had a lot of fun hanging out with my friends in those bars, to be quite honest. I got pretty good at singing some karaoke songs. I got really good at, you know, just chatting, chatting up women without there being any expectation, you know, just being comfortable around people, just all the things I really needed to work on socially, I was able to do. And, uh, I wouldn't have traded that for the world. If you do this thoroughly, few people will ask you to drink while you were drinking. You were withdrawing from life little by little. Now you're getting back into the social life of this world. Don't start to withdraw again, just because your friends drink liquor. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. And also being at the bar for me showed some of my friends who maybe had problems drinking that you can have fun without it. I've said that before. So there was that drive too. Like a very good friend of mine still continues to struggle with alcohol because he thinks that he just will basically shrivel up and die without it. I hope that I gave him the opportunity to see that that, that isn't the case. It's not necessary. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives and God will keep you unharmed. 
Many of us keep liquor in our homes. We often need it to carry green recruits through a severe hangover. Some of us still serve it to our friends, provided they are not alcoholic. I don't think I really need to say that it's probably unlikely that you're carrying people through their hangovers. But some of us think we should not serve liquor to anyone. We never argue this question. We feel that each family, in the light of their own circumstances, ought to decide for themselves. I personally am not going to have beer on hand for friends who come over and want to drink. They're going to have to bring their own drink. But I'm not going to be upset if somebody shows up with a six-pack of whatever beer they want to drink and drinks it at my house if I'm having like an event or a barbecue or a game night or something like that. But that's me personally. And I would probably talk to my sponsor ahead of time. Hey, I'm having this thing. I'm going to have some people over. They're going to be drinking just to kind of get that out there and, you know, to have that exchange. We are careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. Uh, That's changed for me. I think that our society definitely puts a heavy emphasis on drinking as the only way to have fun. And there is a culture around uh, moms being drinkers that I think is horribly uh, harmful, just ridiculous. Like this five o'clock mom, mommy's drink, you know, with wine and, and, and basically it just seems like if you're a mother in America, you absolutely can only survive that through wine. And I, I don't like that at all. So that's an institutional part of drinking and alcohol consumption and the way that our society and our media has portrayed that, that I do not agree with. Uh, and I will have intolerance for Like, I don't think that's acceptable and it's okay that I feel that way. It's not going to make me drink. Uh, but I don't have to be like, yeah, that's fine that we keep plugging that and pushing that on other people and making people feel like that that's how they should be. Yes. We're all individually responsible for ourselves, but media obviously has a big influence on the things that we think. Otherwise we wouldn't think that Pink, the color pink is for girls and the color blue is for boys. That's a media driven concept that just toy manufacturers were like, that's the way things are going to be. And now that's what we believe. So yeah, I, I definitely, this is a very small example, definitely feel like uh, the way the media pushes and portrays alcohol um, and the companies behind those ideas and those, those uh, media outlets, it's a problem. And that's fine. It can be a problem. And uh, I don't have to be tolerant of that. Experience shows that such an attitude is not helpful to anyone. Every new alcoholic looks for this spirit among us and is immensely relieved when he finds we are not witch burners. I don't hate other people that drink, but I do not like that there is a societal uh, push. That's I'll clarify that a spirit of intolerance might repel alcoholics whose lives could have been saved and it had it not been for such stupidity. We would not even do the cause of temperate drinking any good for not one drinker in a thousand likes to be told anything about alcohol by one who hates it. Someday we hope that Alcoholics Anonymous will help the public to a better realization of the gravity of the alcohol problem. But we shall be of little use if our attitude is one of bitterness or hostility. Drinkers will not stand for it. After all, our problems were of our own making. Bottles were only a symbol. Besides, we have stopped fighting anybody or anything. We have to. Okay, now that last part. This is the end of the chapter, by the way. That last part I kind of disagree with specifically because I think there are things worth fighting for and me being sober allows me to articulate the need for that fight a little better and to participate with a little bit more reasonableness. I think there are things in society that we should be pushing towards. And uh, while my opinions on some of those might be different than yours, I hope that that is an opportunity, that this is an opportunity for others to be of service to their community, just like I have been and hope to be in the future. You're Whatever your thing is, I'm not even going to mention what mine are really outside of. I think that we push alcohol on people in a weird way. Whatever that is, you know, now you're in an opportunity where you can put some effort into that and you should fight for those things. If it's equality of a certain kind, if it's justice for a certain sect of people, if it's, you know, the way schools are, whatever the thing is, without getting political, you you have this opportunity. And I, if there were some advice I would give folks that are in recovery, look at those opportunities and realize that we can be of service uh, outside of Alcoholics Anonymous now that we're sober. Uh, anyways, that's the end of the episode. I really appreciate everybody who's continued to join me on this journey and the newcomers that are finding their way here. Uh, please keep coming back. Um, if you have any feedback for me, good or bad, uh, you know, do your best to, to shape the bad in a way that it's constructive. If you could uh, send that to me again, you can reach me at on Twitter at an atheist in. You can find me on Facebook at an atheist reads the big book of a of AA. You can find a, there's both the business page and the group that you can join there. You can reach out to me via email as one at one atheist in AA 
at gmail.com and again on Twitter at atheist underscore n underscore aa. I really hope to hear back from folks. I've enjoyed all the emails that I've received uh, and the connections that I've made. Uh, and I really, uh, really have been enjoying this this whole deal um, from start to finish. I really hope that I can continue on with it uh, as planned. You know, like I said, I want to get into the 12 by 12. There's some other literature that Bill Wilson's put out that I think is really important to folks that are atheists in recovery. There's also literature that is written by other members of the program. There are just tons of different types of recovery out there as well. And I really hope to touch on all that. And until next time, I appreciate you all. Thanks for keeping me sober one more day.